0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. For those of you who don't know, I'll just explain what a Christian apologist is. A lot of people don't really know what that uh, word actually means. It comes from a Greek word found in the New Testament, apologia, meaning to give a uh, defense, to give specifically a rational defense justification or a rational defense, a reasoned defense of the Christian message, the Christian faith. It doesn't mean to be rationalistic. It doesn't mean that you have to be a member of the intellectual elite to give an apologetic. It simply means that our faith makes sense. It's reasonable. It can be reasoned about. It's not like a belief in as some would say, don't walk under that ladder, it's bad luck, or if a black cat runs out of in front of you, superstitions, reading one's horoscopes, things so popular in our culture today, one can offer a reason, justification, and explanation for the Christian faith that holds water and makes sense. And that's what it means to give an apologetic. And uh, that is what I do as, uh, first of all, first and foremost as a Christian, and then as my calling in God is to not only explain the gospel, but to offer a defense of the gospel when called upon to do so. And that takes me to universities and to colleges and churches and seminaries and uh, to different professional groups of people uh, around this country and in other parts of the world. So, for those of you who are perhaps curious about what apologetics is, there we have it. I want to read to, to you from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16 following. We're going to read together. Uh, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles." When they deliver you up do not worry about how or what you should speak for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak for it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father who speaks in you behold i send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be wise as serpents and innocent or harmless as doves i want to focus upon specifically upon that phrase this morning being wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we as believers as Christians seek to engage our culture and engage with our world whether it's something we think about often or not all of us are involved in engagement with our culture with our society and our world whether we're at school whether we're in some vocation some profession whether we're at university whether we work in business We are called, as Christ tells us, to be salt and light and to engage our world. And Jesus gives us some very clear directions as to how we are to go about engaging the culture in which we live. How do we live as believers? And specifically, I want to talk about the apologetic foundation of that engagement, how important it is that we recognize the importance, that we are bearing witness to Christ, and whether you realize it or not, you are an apologist. You may not be a vocational professional apologist, but you are bearing witness in your life and deeds and actions and words, day after day, whatever context in which you find yourself, to the truth about Christ. So the question is simply whether we are effective and good apologists or whether we're ineffective apologists for the faith. As believers, we should be aware that we are really facing only two choices in the way that we live and the way that we conduct our lives in the world, in our affairs as individuals, as families, and as communities. And those two choices are theonomy and autonomy. Let me explain what I mean by that. We either live under the word of God God's truth, that is, we live under God and under His word, or we live autonomously, that means as a law unto ourselves. Either God's word is sovereign and is truth and has authority in our lives, or the word of some man, or men and women, or collection of individuals has authority. Therefore, the choice in our lives, very clearly, very categorically in Scripture, is theonomy to live under God, or autonomy to live under our own authority or the authority of some men and women. We either work then with God's government in our culture or we work against it. We either submit ourselves to him and to Christ or we labor in a sense in futility against God's word which began with our first parents in Eden. What was the temptation to our first parents? You will be... As God's, knowing good from evil, determining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong. Our, the first sin of our first parents was autonomy, to be a self law, to govern oneself, to stand as ultimate in the world, to be as God. And that rebellion, that disobedience has been repeated generation after generation after generation after generation. That's the nature of sin. We worship, either Paul says, the creator or the creature. That is, we worship God or we worship the creation. Either a a person or something in the creation or a philosophy developed by somebody who is part of the creation. Every single human being in the world today is religious and is a worshiper of some kind. may not be in one of what we might call the uh, traditional world faiths. But everybody has a faith foundation to their life. Everybody is essentially, quintessentially religious and puts their faith in something or another, worships either the creator God of Scripture or in one form or another worships the creature. That means we are either theists under God or humanists. Now, not many of us aren't accustomed to thinking in these kind of ultimates, these kind of antitheses, but this is the reality that we face. This is the reality that Scripture gives to us. This is the stark contrast, and that's the Christian worldview. Now, I'm not going to spend this morning justifying the Christian worldview to you because I believe that most of you here are Christians. That is, I'm not going to offer this morning a defense of the Christian worldview as such, But I do want to encourage us to be engaged, whatever field of endeavor God has placed us in, in the task of engaging with our culture as people submitted to Christ. And thankfully, Scripture does give us a very clear understanding of the outcome of the conflict that is taking place in our world between autonomy and theonomy. That is, people living under God as covenant keepers and those living outside of God as covenant breakers. This is what the Scripture tells us. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. And what does Paul say in Philippians? So In honor of the name of Jesus, all beings in heaven, on earth, and in the world below will fall on their knees and will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's very easy to take a defeatist attitude in our culture today. It's very easy to feel defeated by legislation, by governments, by the situation in which we find ourselves in a humanistic, secular context, but... We are given a picture here of God's purpose in history. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's difficult sometimes for us in our Canadian context today to even picture that, to even begin to imagine what that would look like. Isaiah 11 verse 9. But that is true. The earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that glimpse of the end game should give us a great sense of confidence and peace as we think about what Jesus tells us here in Matthew 10 about the nature of our engagement with the world. And it was because Christ knew these things that he could face even a trial before Pontius Pilate and face persecution with the presence of mind and the serenity and the authority that he did in Scripture. What is it he said to Pilate, you, will ha- you would have no authority over me, except it were given you from above. Jesus tells us, now is the ruler of this world cast out. And at the cross he says, it is finished, it's accomplished, it's done. We do live, as we look around ourselves, in a fallen world, that's very obvious, We live in a fallen world. My wife and I were watching um, something on television the other night, Uh, Super nanny, I think it's called. Uh, This British nanny, you may have seen it, she's kind of uh, Mary Poppins type figure who comes into these American homes to sort out behavioral difficulties of the children. And sometimes these, uh, uh, when you've got children these things become of more interest. They wouldn't have have been an interest to me a few years ago, Uh, but it is now. And uh, as we were watching uh, just the other night, one family, uh, the nanny came to see and to help. The children, children as young as three and four, were slapping and hitting their parents and, you back off, three-year-old saying to her mother. Now, if you ever want an illustration of the fall of humankind... And you only need to look at the behavior of toddlers that have been allowed to go delinquent. That is to be a law unto themselves. If you allow a child to become a law unto itself, it will by nature become delinquent. It's not the other way around. We live in a fallen world that clearly needs redemption and displays that need. And we're surrounded by that fact that the world is under the curse of God. Until our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, which Paul tells us about in Romans 8, the earth, the creation itself, groans, awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if the world did not exhibit the fact that it was cursed and fallen, would you or I seek a Savior or seek redemption? The world has to exhibit that it is cursed and fallen and under the wrath of God, as Scripture says, otherwise none of us would seek a Savior. Well, when Jesus sends out here in our passage the 12, he understood fully the context then into which he was sending them into this fallen world. He knew the moral climate of the world that he had sent them to engage. Now, please be conscious of the fact that when Jesus sends out the 12 and later sends out the 72 and so on, he didn't send them into some sort of Christian utopia. He didn't send them into a place that was already exhibiting the kingdom of God fully manifest. He sent them into a place, into a context. When you actually examine first century uh, Roman Empire, even where Jesus came from, from the area of Nazareth, was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's where all the pagans and the heathens and the idolaters are. That's where Jews are mixed with Gentiles and truth is mixed with error. That's exactly why Nathaniel said that. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The context in which he sent them was a context which nurtured views in, that had a moral hostility towards the true God. Jesus, who came to his own and his own didn't receive him when he spoke to the Pharisees themselves, teachers of the law, were hostile. Hostile sought to kill him, told him that even his miracles were performed by the power of demons. It wasn't a friendly context. Sometimes we can look at the New Testament and assume that, well, it was easy for them, all these godly people everywhere, all they had to do was just do a couple of miracles here and there, and hey, presto, the world was converted. Well, that really isn't the uh, story of the New Testament as we read it, is it? As we read through the book of Acts and the story of the early church's interaction with the world and the culture, right through to Acts 17 with Paul at the Areopagus in Athens and is seeking to defend and persuade those Greek thinkers of the gospel. People being dragged before governors and princes and thrown into prison and persecuted and thrown to lions. Read the early history of the church. These words of Jesus ring true The world cannot, in its current state, accept these things. Paul tells us that, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We shouldn't be surprised that the reception is frosty, because the unregenerate heart and mind does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, Paul says. And it's because of this reality that Jesus gives some very specific instructions as how to behave and to engage the culture. In no uncertain terms, he says, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of bunny rabbits, in the midst of wolves, like sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I grew up in an agricultural town in the middle of the rolling hills of Wiltshire in England. Wiltshire, the Shire. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien, well, Tolkien, as you know, was from Oxford, and uh, the place called the Shire, well, he's based that on the shires in England, the different shires, countryside, not so much countryside as there used to be, but the little town I grew up in was an agricultural town in Wiltshire, surrounded by uh, fields and uh, agriculture, but also sheep farmers. And we took many of our holidays as a family in mid-Wales, where there are more sheep than there are people, um, and hillside chapels even. Uh, Sheep are interesting creatures, and it's, it's important to think, why did Jesus use the illustrations that he did? Well, I'm used to seeing sheep, and I'm used to seeing shepherds. I'm not used to seeing wolves, except at Toronto Zoo here, because wolves are extinct now in the United Kingdom. But... Sheep, especially lambs, in fact, to which Jesus is likened, are gentle and innocent-looking creatures. When you look at a sheep, you don't feel threatened. And as yet, I have never seen a marauding flock of sheep turn on a wolf and tear it to pieces. Have you? No, because the sheep let the shepherd defend them. That's the shepherd's role. If there is vengeance to be had, it belongs to the shepherd. We don't take personal vengeance, and we don't turn on people and take the attitude of the world in our engagement with the world. He tells his flock, be wise, cautious as serpents, gentle as doves. And what about this serpent? Well, how often do you see a snake? Have you thought about that? How often do you see a serpent? It's difficult to see serpents, it's difficult to spot them, it's difficult to notice them. They're very picky and cautious and careful about choosing their battles. And so that gives them this air of wisdom and caution. You don't often see them. Now, when a serpent uh, is uh, stirred up, then be careful. Because they can be dangerous. Christians are dangerous, we should be dangerous, not in a... Uh, revolutionary sense, but because of the message we have to bring, Jesus was by no means safe. Nonetheless, when you contrast the wisdom, the subtlety of a serpent, and then the, the cooing and gentle presence of a dove, be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. That is the attitude that we are to take in our engagement with our peers, with our work colleagues with our culture. Wisdom, subtlety, choosing our battles carefully, and gentleness, pleasantness. You know, nobody is offended by the uh, presence of a cooing dove. Does that mean we will never cause offense? No, of course not. But nonetheless, Jesus is helping us here to understand what our attitude should be. And this was Jesus' own rules of engagement he didn't set up a typically faulty dilemma which we hear today which is either fight or flight. You know, that we as believers and we as the church are either to uh, give up and quit and think it's hopeless, useless, forget it and run off in despair, flight and disengage from the world and disengage from our culture. The other attitude that's often seen is that we should fight and we should basically do it in the same way that the world does it. Let's turn on the wolf. Let's nail him. While well, Jesus gives us a different example, those of us who have avoided this kind of faulty dilemma though, some of us can do gain a hearing. Some of us do have important places in our culture, in our context in which we serve. Some of us may be well accepted by the world. Many of us may be getting the flattery of fellow Christians for our success in engaging our culture. Maybe you're so successful in engaging the culture in your environment, in your context, that even worldly people are flattering you for your success. There's a danger that comes with that as well. The scripture says of Jesus that he did not trust himself to the crowd because he knew what was in their hearts. You know, some of the people that Jesus ministered to so uh, honored and admired him, they wanted to make him king. Do you recall that in the New Testament? They tried to make him king by force. Of course, Jesus refused, because they're, not only because that was not his purpose, but their motives were all wrong. Jesus tells us not to put our final trust in men. And one of the dangers for even those of us who feel that we are successful and are succeeding is that we lose sight of the human condition. We lose sight of the condition of our world and we look for the praise that comes from men and not the praise which comes from God. Don't be fooled, Jesus tells us. Don't be wooed by the world, should God grant you influence and position. Don't forget the human heart and what it's like, because the crowds that welcomed Jesus in crying Hosanna to the Son of David, doubtless some of them were there shouting crucify him some days later. So what's our, what's our motivation to be as we seek to share our faith, as we seek to engage with the world? This engagement that we are called to is obligatory, it's not optional. You may be sitting here this morning and thinking, well, this is all very interesting, interesting for professional apologists and so forth, but not for somebody like me. I mean, I work at Tim Hortons. Or, you know, I just um, look after children at home as if that's um, some kind of substandard job. Every single one of us is is called to engage in this task. And we are engaged in it whether we like it or not. What is our motivation to be? Well, Jesus talks about the cost of engagement as we engage with the world, and the, the, the discussion that he has with us in Matthew 10 is perhaps a little different from what we believe we have the right to in our modern democracy. But when theonomy and autonomy come into conflict, Jesus tells us, you will be dragged before governors for, and kings, for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, we can expect different kinds of reaction, the same kinds of reaction that Jesus and the early disciples received. And what is our goal and our objective to be? Well, we shouldn't be clouded by secondary concerns as we do it, but we are to bear witness to the truth. Look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Who did John the Baptist minister to? know, so He even ministered to kings like Herod. He witnessed to the military Soldiers would come and listen to him. He, he ministered to political leaders of his day, the Pharisees, who came to hear him out in the wilderness, this wild man wearing skins and eating locusts, and they came to hear what he had to say. Why, what did he say he was about? Well, he only claimed to be a voice. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make. His path straight. Well, we're called to be a voice. If we gain a seat at the table by the grace of God in different spheres in our culture and in this life, whose power are we operating under? What is our motivation to be? Even in cases where it seems as if we are being dragged before governors and prime ministers and being persecuted via legislation and so on and so forth. We are still to be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. One of the great contrasts between Christianity and other world faiths, other world religions and any other religious perspective is that we are able to dialogue with and talk with and reason with people without having to to silence and destroy them. Why is that? Well, because the truth isn't afraid of error. We don't have to destroy and silence people. That's why the Christian nations of the Western world, they used to be Christian, have liberty and religious liberty, have freedom of expression. That is why in the New Testament we find that Christians are not required to dominate and control our political, economic, or social environment by force. As in Islam, Islam requires the subjection, the submission of all to Sharia and the infidel must either convert, die or pay a heavy tax and suffer discrimination. Every aspect of life, every single minutiae in life is regulated under Islamic law. Or take Hinduism for example where the caste system provides a structure and order in that society. You are born into a certain caste, and that caste will restrict what you can become in that society, what level of education you might receive, what job you might be able to have, because to interfere with somebody's caste is to interfere with their karma, because they are are caught in a cycle of births and rebirths and rebirths, and in this next life they're paying off sins in the previous life, encouraging a total moral indifference towards their brothers and sisters again a philosophy a philosophy that encourages a total control of the environment that's why anti conversion laws were recently passed in parts of india though i think they've recently been revoked by the new government again secularism humanism secularism that so dominates canada today as is increasingly recognized even by the secular commentators should know that there are intellectuals in Britain today who refer to Canada as the most totalitarian Soviet-like state in the West. Intellectuals from Oxford say that Canada is the closest thing in the Western world that we have to the Soviet Union because it's so totalitarian in its secular humanism that it foists upon the population here. This country used to have a Christian private Uh, not only Christian and private, but uh, non-state governed education where there was a total separation between the state's jurisdiction even over the schools. And even the early state schools were Christian. Now, woe betide anybody setting up a nativity or speaking about the cross and resurrection of Christ at Easter or singing a carol In Canada, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. God, keep our land strong and free. Who having dominion from sea to sea. What is the religious result of secular humanism in Canada today? It demands an absolute control. An absolute control of the state. Indoctrinating children with secularism. Trying to reorientate all of their values. Am I being party political partisan, not at all. I'm just observing a fact that even secular writers in Canada are observing there is a tendency here towards an extreme totalitarianism. And when that happens, when young people in the universities are told it's man's law, we submit to man, there is no God above the secular state. Secular meaning this worldly from the Latin seculum. In the end it leads to anarchism. Why? Well, because when a person is told there is no law but man's law, in the end, why should there be any law outside of my own law until everybody does what is right in their own eyes? And people do as they please. And so we swing between totalitarianism and anarchism. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Those are the four basic questions that are answered by every single religious perspective that all the people that you and I interact with, our neighbors, our school friends, our university colleagues, our work colleagues, have to answer and do answer on the basis of their worldview perspective. And either God speaks to us in Christ, in his word, or the state is God walking the earth, as in the philosophy of the German philosopher Hegel, on which we base our statist view today in our Western cultures the state man is God walking the earth there is no law above man's law Now these things are open to your inquiry but this isn't the way of Christ of course he calls us to engage with wisdom and gentleness not dominating by wielding revolutionary political power but by serving in the spirits power How are you and I to see our culture transformed, to be salt and light, preserving and enlightening those in darkness? Well, you've heard the saying, it's better to light a lamp than curse the darkness, haven't you? Sometimes we spend so much time just cursing the darkness that we fail to light the lamp that Christ has given to us and is trying to light in our lives. Because light drives away darkness. You don't have to curse the darkness to dispel darkness, do you? In fact, you can't dispel darkness by just cursing it. You get rid of darkness simply by lighting a lamp. Regeneration, renewal, revival leads to transformation. And that leads to a Christian reconstruction of a culture. Let me say that again. Regeneration, renewal, revival and transformation leads to a reconstruction of a culture on Christian terms. Where the scripture says according to Jeremiah that the new covenant it is that the law will be written on our hearts. No man will say to his neighbor, know the Lord, but each of you will know him from the least to the greatest. That's what the new covenant is, that God's law word will be written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us as well, of course, that this isn't our work anyway. This isn't primarily our work. God is not impotent. The Scripture says God's arm is not short that he cannot save. We cannot act on our own agenda or we've become autonomous ourselves. And Christ says, when that hour of opportunity comes to you and for you, whatever context it may be in, God will tell you and help you with what to say. As verse 20 says, It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you believe that? That when you speak for Christ... In the situation God has called you to, it's not you who speak. It's God speaking through you. My colleague Ravi was recently speaking to the UN ambassadors and the African heads of state in Africa. And he had the opportunity of uh, not only speaking to them, but uh, holding the hand of Kofi Annan in prayer at the end of a, a meeting of UN ambassadors. Does he feel flattered by that? Does he feel that? No, not at all. He's serving God, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, in the situation God has placed him in, to light a lamp rather than curse the darkness. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, Paul reminds us that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world anyway. We don't use the same tactics. We don't repay insult for insult. It's not merely political interest with a conservative moral agenda. Our weapons are not of the flesh, Paul says, but have divine power to demolish strongholds. And what are those strongholds? False knowledge, speculations that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Think for a moment about that divine power to demolish strongholds, working through you and I, pulling down arguments and false knowledge. Think about that divine power a moment. How is it that the apostles, 12 fearful people, And some of the women from the group huddled away in a room after the death of Christ. Terrified, are transformed. Think about that number. How many people are in this room today, in these two services today? 500, 600 over the course of this morning? 120 were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. A few short centuries later, for better or for worse, Theodosius and Constantine were Christianizing an entire empire, taking Christianity to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, which is the only reason Britain got Christianity in the first place, which is why Canada received it some years later. 120 people in the upper room transformed a pagan empire. How? Well, by being thrown to lions and being scourged in the synagogues and giving a defense when the opportunity arose. You didn't see Paul saying, now let's raise a military army, let's take over by revolution, let's storm, let's storm Athens and let's go and storm Rome from there and set up the kingdom of God by force now in the earth. No. No. He was found in chains when he wrote some of his epistles from prison. Notice how he offered his defense throughout the book of Acts as Luke so often records. And notice how Peter commissions us, a fisherman, a fisherman, an uneducated fisherman, as is noted even in the book of Acts, tells us in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And do this with gentleness and with respect. Again, the gentleness, the respect. A fisherman commissions the persecuted church to be ready to give a defense. I suspect you have had more education than an uneducated fisherman. So you can see that the apologetic task is not about the level of one's education. Notice how Jesus tells us not to be anxious, but to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And I have no doubt that when, Paul, when Peter gave that commission in 1 Peter 3, 15, he recalled these words of Christ in Matthew 10. In 1 Peter 3, verse 8 following, he tells us that there should be unity of mind, sympathy, love, tender hearts, humble minds among the people of God, not repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. And so Jesus could teach us, have no fear of them. The people that you are engaging with, the people that you are speaking to, the people you are trying to reach, have no fear and if you suffer because of righteousness' sake, don't be troubled about it. In fact, he says rejoice and be glad when you suffer because of righteousness' sake, because great is your reward in heaven. Peter tells us, first of all, that we should set apart Christ as Lord in our lives, in our thinking, in our behavior, before we can offer a reasoned defense. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and Always be ready to give a defense to anybody who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. Unless we make Christ Lord of our thinking and of our behavior, including our intellectual lives, that means surrender to the Word of God. Now, people are happy, of course, to surrender to the, some of the moral teachings of Christ and the Word of God. That's okay. It doesn't seem to... That seems fine. But what about the teaching of Christ on origins, the teaching of the Scripture on origins, Mm, Not so sure about that now after my university education. And then what about the teaching of the Scripture on the flood and the judgment of the world? Mm, Yes, after my geology and paleontology and my humanistic indoctrination from Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin and Richard Dawkins and so on and so forth. I'm not quite sure now about the Word of God. And after law school, I'm not sure about the Mosaic law. Well, that's not the Lordship of Christ that's the lordship of man with Jesus tagged on the end. and That's one of the reasons for the ineffectiveness of the church in our generation in Canada. We don't want, haven't really got the lordship of Christ in heart, mind, soul and strength. We have Christ's lordship in a compartmentalized area of our lives where it's acceptable to have Christ as Lord, we think. But then in these other areas, so that we can give a reasoned defense and it makes sense and is coherent... We don't have Christ as Lord, but if Christ isn't Lord, listen, this book is one coherent message from start to finish. It all stands or falls together. Christ justified his divinity on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. It is written was Christ's constant refrain. If you can't trust the word of God from cover to cover, then you can't trust the words of Christ. You can't be sure of the divinity of Christ. Jesus spoke both of creation of Adam and Eve and of the flood. Peter tells us that eight people emerged from the ark of God. So then you've got to say that Jesus was wrong and Peter was wrong, or at least they were prisoners of their culture and didn't know what the world was about. And then by what criteria are you going to judge which pieces of scripture you retain and which you don't? You see, if we are to effectively engage in our culture and give a reasoned defense, we have to be consistent and we have to believe God's word as a coherent, full orb, total message and revelation to humankind, not just to an isolated group of people called the church. This word is for the world. For the world. What was the extent of the Great Commission? Go into all of the areas where people seem friendly to some moral teaching and teach them what I have told you. He says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus says, therefore, not in your authority or your wisdom, therefore you go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. Not teach them the bits that are palatable to a humanistic secular culture. But all things that I've commanded you. Peter says then that when we do this with gentleness and with respect, we won't be slandered. But even those who do revile us in here will be put to shame. They'll be put to shame. The risk for all of us is that we go out as sheep among wolves but without the shepherd's instructions. Let's not pretend we can be out there and and engage our culture and be salt and light in the world without the shepherd's instructions of wisdom, innocence, submission to Christ, offering a reasoned defense with gentleness, with respect, with divine power, not being troubled or anxious or fearful. Do you know when we live like that, we will be such a community of people reflecting the Trinity itself, the community of love within the Trinity That people will ask us a reason for the hope that is in us, just as Peter says they will. For many of us, we think that evangelism is essentially this. Accost somebody in the street or a neighbor, cram the Bible down their throat. (laughs) And then we're afraid of evangelism, right? Because we think, oh, how can I do that? That's awful. What a terrible thing. But actually, Peter says, when we are living like this, people will ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. They will come to us. They will ask us. A community as innocent as doves. Not a group identical with the world, but with a different political agenda, which is what most people out there think we are. And unfortunately, the statistics back them up. The statistics, gathered by the church, tell the church that we're no different from the world morally. That in terms of abortion and divorce and so on and so forth, we are essentially the same in North America. And so what are we seen as? Well, we're seen as a group of people who are identical with the world, except that we have a different political agenda to accomplish, and it's got something to do with oil in the Middle East or greenhouse gas. Is that what the church is? Of course not. Thus, though it may be God's will at times to place Christians in high office, that is not the solution to our trials because leaders serve very short terms. They can be disposed of very quickly. Meaningful engagement involves us in all spheres of influence, offering an apologetic in word and indeed bearing witness to the light so that the underlying arguments and assumptions and presuppositions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God can be addressed. We often fail to understand that people don't share our position on moral issues because they don't understand our worldview. Their ultimate context for thinking is totally different. And that means that we have to help people redefine the question. We have to address the underlying perspective on reality that they have because in order to challenge the issues, you have to challenge the perspective which people are coming from. That's called a worldview. I can't challenge a professor of philosophy or a university student about their view, for example, of, say, sexual ethics or the sanctity of life and abortion. Why? Unless I've addressed their worldview. Because to that professor, to that student, what is in the womb is not a human being. It's a random biochemical accident, a collection of cells. A human being is a blob that evolved rationality from the goo through the zoo to you. You're an animal, an advanced animal. And there is embryonic recapitulation and so on. All this nonsense that we're taught in school, fraudulent things, actually, scientifically, about the similarity of embryos in their stages of development and so on and so forth. That's what they believe a person is. Of course, they don't think abortion's wrong. All you're doing is getting rid of something like a fish, if that, just a bundle of tissues, not a person that has been knit together in its mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made overshadowed by the presence of God. The days written in God's book, as Psalmist tells us. So until you address the worldview issue of what is a human being, you can't answer the question of abortion. They think you're mad, you're draconian, you're a fool, you're out of date. You're inconsistent. You see, they are being consistent with their perspective. The same is true of sexual ethics and all the other ethical questions, the sacredness of human life and of human sexuality. You see, Jesus redefined these questions because he has spoken with authority in his word about human identity and sanctity, and he brought answers from above to the questions from below, and he redefined secular questions in sacred terms. He redefined secular questions in sacred terms by destroying the myth of the secular. Think about this for a moment, what the Scripture says about Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's the Gospel of John. And what of the words of Paul, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, Christ is the creator and sustainer of the world. That's why he could exercise power over his creation. He could calm storms, raise the dead, heal the blind and the deaf and the lame. Because he was the creator walking his creation. Now in such an instance, in such a case, is there any such thing as a secular fact As a secular reality, this world belongs to God. It's created and sustained by him. Every moment, right now, moment by moment, you are sustained by the fiat word of Christ. If that were not so, this whole universe would fall apart. He holds all things together by the word of his power. In him we live and move and have our being. The one who fills all in all. That's the scriptural teaching about Christ. And so Christ and the apostles set the questions in their ultimate context to challenge the questioners. And I close with this thought. Jesus is asked one day, for example, about paying taxes to Caesar. He's asked a a question that is a political trap. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? In public. Well of course if he says yes you should then he's seen as being opposing the Jews supporting a pagan society supporting a pagan occupation of Israel if he says no then he can be accused of sedition and not paying and encouraging the people not to pay taxes to Caesar which is in fact what he was accused of by the Pharisees before Pilate What does Jesus say well he redefines the question Give me a Roman coin with your foolish trick questions, whose head is on this? Caesar's? Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, pay your taxes, but render unto God what belongs to God. That's called redefining the question. Giving an answer from above, to a question from below. In Luke 13, Jesus is asked about Galilean rebels who have just been executed by Pilate and their blood was mingled with pagan sacrifices. And they asked Jesus about this. What's Jesus' response? I'm sure they were expecting an incisive political comment, but he redefines the events, giving them a sacred rather than a secular interpretation by defining the meaning of history as God's call to us to repentance. Repentance. He says, do you think that these people were worse sinners than you because they died in this way? No, I tell you, unless you also repent, you likewise will perish. What of the Tower of Siloam that fell upon those people in there? Do you think that they were worse sinners than you? Those people who died in the tsunami, do you think they were worse sinners than you? No, I tell you. Unless you repent, you also will perish. He wasn't there to give a political comment to flatter his hearers. He redefined the question that history, all of history, is a call to you and I to repentance. Even the disastrous events that we see around us, we're not in a position to make moral judgments about good or evil of those people. No, unless we too repent and turn to Christ we will perish. In his interview with Pilate, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, do you say this on your own accord or has somebody told you to say that about me? What's your assumptions, Pilate? Think about the way Jesus is talking to the procurator. What have you done, he says? My kingdom's not of this world. Where are you from? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? or to release you, Jesus says, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. That's the God we serve. Jesus sets the questions in their true context, getting getting at the false assumptions of those who ask the question. You know, Ravi was recently in Israel and uh, there he was speaking to a sheikh, a sheikh who was one of the co-founders of Hamas, the Islamic fundamentalist terrorist movement. And after a conversation with this man, a pub, uh, in, a, in a private conversation with a number of other people, closed door meeting, hearing this man justifying terrorism in, in Israel and in Palestine and so on, and suicide bombing, this man had lost his, some of his family, some of his children in these um, uh, Uh, he'd been imprisoned himself and he'd lost family members in their conflict with the Israelis and so on. And Ravi said this, he said, do you remember the story of Father Abraham? Of course the Muslims accept that there was a man named Abraham. He said, do you remember his sons, Isaac and Ishmael? He says, you believe the promise came through Ishmael, I believe it was Isaac. That's not the point right now though. Do you remember the story about how Abraham takes his son to sacrifice him on Mount Horeb at the command of God? And you remember how God stayed his hand and God says that he would provide a lamb for the sacrifice? He said, yes, I remember that story. He said, until you and I recognize that God has provided a lamb, you and I will go on sacrificing our sons and daughters on the battlefields of human hate. There's an illustration of answering from above, a question from below. My encouragement to you today is to go out wiser serpents, gentle as doves, to engage the culture in which God has placed you, in the vocation that God has put you, with the neighbors and friends that God has given you, offering a sacred interpretation to life and history as lights shining in the darkness, so that people will understand, just like my daughter does, each night as I sit with her in her room, and at her behest, sing her, he's got the whole world in his hands. He does. All authority has been given unto me. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, of the increase of his government and of his peace. There will be no end. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can bear witness to the truth and to the light. Help us, Lord, to follow your example, the example that you have set, that we might be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves as we go out as sheep among wolves. And we know, Lord, that you will have the victory because this is your world and you are accomplishing your purposes through your people, through your church. We place ourselves into your hands today and offer ourselves to you again for your service. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.